Today is Wednesday, October the 31st. Happy Halloween. And you're listening to the Hinterviews podcast with Peter Hinton, produced by the National Arts Centre English Theatre and coming to you from the Panorama Room of Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm Laura Denker. Welcome to this second Interviews podcast of the 2007-08 NAC English Theatre season, a season of great classics for the contemporary stage. In each episode, we hope to take you into the intimate world of the artists and creative minds behind the productions on stage at the National Arts Centre English Theatre. In these interviews, artistic director Peter Hinton chats with a guest artist associated with a production. In today's interview podcast, Peter speaks with John Wood, former artistic director of the National Arts Centre English Theatre, noted Canadian theatre director, and co-author with Roger Forbes of the new play Falstaff, based on the award-winning book by Robert Nye, running at the NAC English Theatre in a world premiere production from October the 25th to November the 3rd. Well, great. Well, welcome everybody to this afternoon's interview with John Wood. Uh, talking about the production of Falstaff. And it is really um, a great privilege and a special honor to welcome John Wood back to the National Arts Centre because, as many of you know, John was the artistic director here of the English Theatre at the NAC between 1977 and 1984. And it is great because not only is John... uh, uh, a nationally recognized director and an artist that I love having here, but having someone who also uh, was here in, in the job that I have is incredibly um, uh, flattering. It's great to have him here for that. And it's also it's great for the history of our theater. It provides continuity between different times. Every artistic director thinks they're inventing the wheel themselves. And so it's... Uh, Very good to have someone here who invented it before and has had many great successes. For those of you who uh, were subscribers here, you'll remember John's productions, um, many of them, uh, some of which include uh, Robert Lowell's version of the Oresteia of Aeschylus that starred Kate Reed as Clytemnestra. Trollis and Cressida and Hamlet by Shakespeare, Breck's Mother Courage, Lute by Joe Orton, as well as Canadian plays, Blood Relations by Sharon Pollock, Sprung Rhythm by Paul Gross, John and the Misses by Gordon Pinsent. Um, it is uh, with great affection and warmth I'd like you to join me in welcoming John to the NAC. So what's it like to be back? What, what are you... Well, I have to tell you, um, the first production meeting I had after I got back was in your office. Uh-huh. And you weren't there, but I was sitting <laughs> in my old office and, uh, having a production meeting like many I'd had before, and it felt very strange. That was early on. Now I feel like I'm home, and uh, it's not strange at all. Now tell us about Falstaff, how that came to be, where the idea came from. It came from Roger Forbes, actually. Uh, Roger and I have the same agent in England, a wonderful lady uh, named Elspeth Cochran, who uh, was the first stage director at Stratford. She came over with Tyrone Guthrie. 
Oh, wow. And she's now an agent, and Roger and I are both with her. And so as a result of that connection, and the connection Roger had with Stratford before, uh, Roger came to be in the production of Macbeth I directed in 2004. And one night toward the end of the season, we were sitting at his house, and his wife was over, and I was having dinner with them, and Roger mentioned this book. And he'd always wanted to... Uh, he'd always thought it would make a very good theater piece. Uh, but didn't know where to start going into it. So I said, well, what if I read it? So I read the book and came back and suggested that I have a go at kind of going into the book and pulling all of the stuff that I thought might work in a theatrical piece. And then uh, we started to get together and it became a jigsaw puzzle and things got thrown out and put back in and moved around. And now I go back to that. And it's, it's, what you're seeing is really Robert Nye's work we did a great editing job, I think, on it, or did an editing job, but it's Robert Nye's words and his images and his language and his idea. And when I first read the book, I thought, um, this sounds like Shakespeare got everything from Robert Nye <laughs> instead of yeah. the other way around. So it's very, very clever, I think, what he's done, yeah. combining the historical uh, Falstaff, I won't give that away, um, with the Shakespeare fictional character, because Shakespeare actually did base this on a real person. And so a lot of the history today is very surprising, mm -hmm. uh, because it's not Shakespeare, mm -hmm. but the idea came from I think from that's a really interesting thing that not a lot of people know, that, of course, Shakespeare's John Falstaff, who's probably one of his most famous characters and creations, is actually based on a real person. Mm -hmm as, you know, the character comes from the history plays, which chronicle the history of the uh, Wars of the Roses and just before and after mm -hmm. that. Um, what did Shakespeare, without giving away too much, okay. uh, what are the fundamental differences between the historical person who might be a John Falstaff and uh, Shakespeare's creation? Well, in this piece, I think they're the same. Uh -huh. I think it's the same guy you will see if you go to see a really good production of Henry IV, Part One and Two. Right. It's all of the images that the painters have done. It's that great big fat guy who tells a lot of stories, some of which are true and some maybe not. Mm -hmm. um, which is why it's interesting that when we first started talking about this, that we were talking about what would go in the brochure and what the idea of this was. And uh, uh, Peter said that the the uh, graphic artists were working on something that said liar. And I said, well, there's a better one, I think. And that's King Liar, because King Liar was something that, that Robert and I wrote. Um, and when you see this, I, assume, I think that you are going to hear some stories that you will take as being true. You will definitely take some stories and believe that they're not true. And they might be true. So there's, there's a quality to this that uh, I think comes from that. We're pretty sure who Falstaff is in Shakespeare because there's a, there's a definite bias. And I think we tend to really think he's a, just a, an old Rogan who, who is a liar because that's how Hal sees him and that's how Hal treats him. But in this, I think, that there's, I think there's more to Falstaff. And, and certainly in the play, there's a big distinction between lies and facts and truth that while everything might not be a fact 
that Falstaff recalls, it contains a truth. There's a truth. There's a, the reason he's, he's talking about it, whether it's a, a lie, there's something he wants to um, get across to us. There's something he wants to communicate. It's, it's a really fun thing to listen for when you see the play, which is what it will recall for you of what you know of Henry IV plays, the Shakespeare plays, or Henry V, and it will recall people in scenes. You'll go, oh yes, that scene or that moment. And then there's lots of new stuff where you go, oh, I didn't know that, or that's interesting. And then you go, wait a minute, how is that possible with that as he takes on his own fiction and his own... Well, it's also very early on in the play, and this is not giving it away, he he talks about um, having been at Agincourt. Well... (laughs) Uh, Shakespeare had killed him off long before Agincourt. Uh, but the real person that, uh, that Shakespeare based it on was at Agincourt. So that there's, a, you know, there's a kind of... Uh, this is about the things Shakespeare left out, I think. Yeah, there's something um, you can't put down about the character, and I think that was true for Shakespeare as well, and how he reinvented him, and even... After he dies in Henry V, he somehow comes back to life for the Merry Wives of Windsor that, mm-hmm. as only characters from fiction can. And Queen Elizabeth was the one that demanded it, wasn't she? Yes. She liked him so much in the Henrys that uh, she said, oh, you can't kill him off. And so he had to write another play, which was called Merry Wives of Windsor. And that's referred to, I mean, there are a lot of references to the Falstaff of Merry Wives of Windsor in this as well. Uh-huh. There's a great book called uh, 1599, and it's by oh, James Shapiro. Mm-hmm. And it's about, he's a historian who's just writing about life in 1599 in London from the point of view of the history and Shakespeare's uh, theater. And he quotes from it an incredible uh, excerpt of a visitor to London. And in the year 1600, the play Henry V is done. And when Hostess Quickly is speaking of Falstaff's death, the booze from the public, the outrage of dis- disappointment that this character has been killed, are so great the actor has to struggle to be heard. Mm-hmm. What is it about Falstaff? Why is Falstaff such a... Because we really like big drunks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there's something... And he's a great storyteller. I think yeah. that is really the key here. Uh, that He's a great storyteller. And Roger's a wonderful actor, so that the combination of those two makes the text very clear, I think, that the stories are very clear. Um, I think that's why I've always liked Falstaff. And, um, it, and that's why I think that, the, that there's a feeling, uh, there's a real connection between the 1459 of the play and now. There are so many things that shake, and they, they come from Shakespeare, and there's so many things questioning uh, life at that time and this was Shakespeare's time, but uh, we have to remember that this is 1459, so Falstaff has never heard of Shakespeare. Right. We have to remember that. <laughs> Shakespeare's <laughs> not. Shakespeare hasn't been, been born yet. Yeah. And uh, so I think that he's, uh, he, he just is one of those people, I think we've all known wonderful people. I bring up one, and it's Roly Hugo, who was uh, an actor with us, who was an ex- yeah. who was not with us anymore, but he was one of those bigger-than-life storytellers. And we've all known them. And I think we identify with the reality of Falstaff. And uh, the fact that he was probably quite a lonely man and his, the, the, 
real strong affection in his life was for Prince Hal, who treated him very badly. Um, and it's, there's something quite sad and, and lonely about the character. Yeah. And I think that comes through too. There's a, there's a real um, kind of a dichotomy in what, uh, in, in what comes across when you watch this man who looks totally in control and totally self-sufficient and totally in charge of absolutely everything. Fearless guy. Yeah. yeah. And then underneath you see the kind of scared, uh, rather disappointed person who's 81 years old now and uh, is rambling around an old tavern by himself. Oh, dear. With a lot of money. And, yeah. But the friends have all gone, and that's why he kind of relives and talks about all of his friends. What, what for you were the greatest challenges in taking something that begins as a novel. It's been interesting because we've had two pieces at the beginning of the season that began as novels and got adapted to plays, the Penelopead by Margaret Atwood and uh, now Falstaff. What are the challenges as a director and a dramatist in taking that on? Um, separating the two hats, or keeping the two hats separate. And that didn't really um, pose a problem until we actually got here and started <laughs> rehearsing because I was... The two Roger, hats by what? what the, two? The, the director and the one of the right. playwrights. Yeah, trying to separate that. Well, while I was working on it, I mean, I, I, as a director, I was always able to have pictures in my head of how it should be, but not really notice, no, knowing what it would be until Leo Sharp, the designer, came on board and we started to um, develop the vision or the world in which to put this play. And uh, I don't. There, there were no real problems. It was very smooth uh-huh. because Roger and I worked so well together and agreed on what should be and we'd, we'd have a story that we both loved but knew that we uh, really couldn't support putting it in the place so that would go. And we were always, right up until the last minute, right up until Monday, we were taking little bits out yeah. because they were extraneous or they were in the wrong place or there was just something. But it's been a very smooth uh, relationship and a very smooth process. Yeah. And is it partly the way the book itself is structured well, book, that it lends itself well to? Well, we just went through. I mean, the book is 500 pages. It's a very big book, and we have 45-page script, large, <laughs> large type, um, which takes two hours to, yeah. to speak. Um, but the book is so brilliant. I mean, I, I recommend it to anybody. Yeah. Uh, because Robert Nye is a poet primarily and has written a number of books about the Shakespeare world. There's one called The Late Mr. Shakespeare and one called Mrs. Shakespeare, The Complete Works. <laughs> and she's given the complete works about him. It has nothing to do with writing. Uh, but he's a wonderful... Uh, he lives in Ireland now. He's English, but he lives in Ireland now. And uh, he was very encouraging when he read the script uh, because I think authors would be... No, novelists would be very. Although they had, they had given us the rights to do it to do this, I think they were a little apprehensive about what we would come up with. So I sent him the reviews this morning. So hopefully he will be a little bit. Uh, uh, no, he's been very. They've been very encouraging. Uh, but the the book itself is brilliant. I mean, you read this and you do the images and the language, and the humor, and the bodiness which we've managed to keep some of it in the, in the play. Uh, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, but it was, that was the support. That's why we kept going. That's why it was 
pretty easy because we were just taking a gift from Robert and I and kind of working around. Now I look at the book and I, can, I want to find a, a, a certain line or a little section and I forget where it comes from. I have to go through the book and, because it's, it's, it's kind of moved around. But it's still Robert and I. It's not it, perhaps in the order that, uh, that the novel is in, but it's, it's certainly Robert and I. And Robert Nye has, as you mentioned, having written about Shakespeare, about Anne Hathaway, he's also written about um, Gilles de Ray, who was, uh, we think, the original Bluebeard. Um, he writes about characters from history and fiction. And he's also, Gilles de Ray is actually in the book of Falstaff In as well. Falstaff because yes, he... with Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc, that's yes. right. But it would have been too cumbersome to, when we got to yeah. that section to kind of include all of the images and all of the stories. So we had to pare it down. And that's the thing about doing the theater is you have to pare it down so that because you can't go back and read something that maybe you yeah. missed. You just you hear it once and it has to keep going and you have to get it immediately or you're going to be, the audience is going to be holding on to something they thought they heard and miss what is said next. So that's right. one of the... Well, um, someone might, you know, a critic could say to Robert and I and to you and Roger, like, you know, let Shakespeare speak for himself. Leave Falstaff alone. Why do we need another play about this subject? Or why, why do we want to explore this? What, what would your answer to that annoying critic be? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's really an, it's an investigation of old age. It's an investigation of a lot of things um, that Shakespeare... Didn't do. I mean, Shakespeare took stories by everybody else and wrote them into yes. into his plays. Why can't we do the same thing? Yeah, yeah. And I think that the, the, what we found was the the connection with Shakespeare uh, was fascinating to us. And because we, bo- you know, we both worked in a theater and worked in Shakespeare, that some of the some of the things that were said were immediately appreciated. Uh-huh. But um, finally, it's really dealing with one of the fascinating historical or fictional or both yeah. characters that we've ever run across. There was a reason Shakespeare decided to make to create this character. Yeah. And I think Shakespeare might be quite happy with the result. Uh, hopefully. That, yeah. uh, he, would, he would like to see that something he invented has become so famous and so real. Yeah. And he's as real today because we keep seeing him on the stage, so he's still here. So I think that... Uh, the critic might, uh, I'd find some perhaps other words to say to the critic. <laughs> and it is such, I mean, it's really up there with Hamlet, Lear. It's considered one of the great parts in the canon, oh, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and the, the connection with Lear, I think, is very important. The uh, old, the other old man in Shakespeare. There's a real, there's a kind of flip side and yet you can see the, the connection. The only th- problem with Lear is he didn't have the sense of humor. If he had had the sense of humor <laughs> and, uh, that Falstaff has, he might not have ended the way he did. Yeah. But there is also something that the, the lonely uh, old man trying to figure out what it's all about toward the end of his life. Is, I think that there's mm. a real connection there. And I think Shakespeare... Um, poured a lot of his talent into both of those characters. 
I think there was really some understanding. Well, he had a great understanding of a lot of things, but, but there's, there's a real connection, I think, between the Lear yeah. and Falstaff. Uh, John directed a phenomenal production of Henry V for the Stratford Festival with Gerwin Davies as, as Henry and Hal, King Henry. And uh, one of the things he did is, you, you might know the play that there's a chorus in it that does the over a muse of fire speech. And in John's production, that chorus was portrayed as a war veteran and was an older guy uh, in a wheelchair. Mm. And it was incredibly poignant. I remember when I saw that, all my notions of this chorus being a theatrical device and kind of gone, and it became intensely real and poignant. And I was reminded of that production again when I saw Falstaff, that spirit of seeing an old man talk about his fighting days, his sexual adventures, his, his youth. Um, did, uh, have you directed the Henry IV plays? No, uh, I haven't. Aha. I haven't, I've, but I've done Henry V twice because I did it once here. Oh, that's right, Center, yes, of course. With Neil Monroe playing Henry. Yeah. And then the one at Stratford. And, uh, and funnily enough, the one here, Falstaff was in it, the Henry V, Falstaff was in it because I thought, well, nobody, if I put the death of Falstaff in, nobody's going to know who Falstaff was. Right. So we did a couple of the scenes between Falstaff and, and Prince Hal oh, you did? Okay. Uh, with Douglas Campbell recording oh. the Prince Hal, and David Hamblin behind a scrim oh, yeah. acting. Oh, the, my gosh. And then when I did it at Stratford, I thought, uh, I just cut him out. I just cut the the death of Falstaff out because I wouldn't, if we were doing Henry IV Part One and Two at the same time, but to just hear about a death of a great character that you haven't seen, I thought, oh, so we just we cut that mm. part out. Now I'm making up for it. Oh. <laughs> has Roger played Falstaff before? He has, he has. Okay. He's um, played it in Oregon, is that right, Jen? Right, right. So he's done, the, he's done all of them. And uh, the I think Falstaffiad. The Falstaffiad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. And it was that uh, part of the process in working on it, that experience <coughs> with the history plays that you have as, on the well, five? And he, he knew much more about Falstaff in the Henry Fours than I did and Mary Wives of Windsor because I've, I haven't directed any of, the, the, any of the three. So Roger would come in and I'd feel quite stupid because I didn't know them as well as he did. Yeah. But uh, that was part of the, the fun of doing this, that he would identify immediately some of the things we were yeah. putting in or should put in uh, as being direct references to the Shakespeare. I've directed the first part of Henry VI, where you get well into the play, a character comes along named Jack Fastoff, who's a big drinker. <laughs> mm -hmm bit of a storyteller, Bragadocio, been very similar. I think this probably, Mr. and I saw that and kind of uh -huh. included some of that in the... Which Shakespeare wrote when he was very young. That was some first. Some people think that, that was Henry first, VI, yeah, yeah, it was one of the first plays he wrote. So that as a young man, there's Shakespeare, you know, 20-odd years writing Jack Fastoff, and then he develops that character perhaps into Jack Falstaff. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I notice here too that um, you've been uh, writing and working on a film mm-hmm. about Vimy Ridge. Well, I did a. Uh, I worked with Richard Nielsen on a film on Vimy Ridge, and we're now working on uh, a, uh, the the last hundred days, which um, which is the last part of the First World War, and we're trying to aim that at. The, the 90th anniversary next year of the end of the war. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's been a very interesting journey because Vimy Ridge, we hold up Vimy Ridge as being the, the beginning of the country, the, the, the real battle, the, the, the real Canadian battle, where in fact the Canadians fought it, but it, it was run by a British General, it was General Bing who was in charge of the Canadian forces, and it was after that when General Arthur Currie took over the Canadian forces and was the first Canadian to do so, to, to to be the commander of the Canadian forces that the Canadians really did come into their own. And the next year, in the last hundred days from 19, August of 1918, uh, is fascinating because you see that the Canadians were spearheading every one of the, uh, the battles uh, that led, uh, led to the armistice in, in, in November 1918. Because up until that point, in, in August of 1918, nobody thought the war was going to be over until the summer of the following year. And certain things that Curry did, I think, um, really did shorten the war and save millions of lives. So we're kind of looking at this historically and finding the, the, uh, the support for the, for the theory, but it's, uh, it's fascinating to work on. Yeah. And, There's always yeah. an interesting thing, you know, that's both uh, fantastic and frustrating when you're doing a history play of Shakespeare's or a historical play, is you as a theater person, go to history to look for research and authority and information, and you go to the history books, and they'll quote, in a 17th century source, the very play you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's the example. So there's this interesting connection between history and theater that Falstaff has, and you certainly have in that. But Falstaff actually does say, never believe historians. <laughs> yes. He does say that at one point. But I think it's a bit of a joke. Uh-huh. I think it's one of the times he's putting us on. Uh-huh. So he's he's t- teasing us, testing us. Well, the thing, where he does say it is when he's about to talk about Gad's Hill, which is quite a famous section in Henry IV, Part One, And he does say that uh, the truth about a battle is never from one point of view. You have to have three stabs at it in order to really find the truth about a battle. And that's absolutely true. And the, the, when you start to study uh, various wars or uh, situations, no one point of view is going to be the only point of view you should look at in, in, yeah. in order to find out what everybody was thinking about. I mean, if you look at Iraq, you're going to find a totally different uh, attitude toward it uh, from a from a Kurdish Iraqi or from an Iraqi than you are from certain Americans. So it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I think it's, it's quite the fact that the Gads Hill turned out, you know, is, is one of the great, I think, uh, 
humorous moments in Shakespeare, mm. that he really has fun with it, and the fact that, that Roger is doing it in this. But there, there's a very, uh, I think, uh, good reason to look at it in, in, from many different points of view. Uh-huh. Um, I'd like to open the floor for questions that you might have for John about <coughs> Falstaff, about the history, about the play you're about to see this afternoon. Yeah? Um, I'm wondering what Pritchell learned from Falstaff. Would he, would he have been a much different king if he had not known Falstaff? So the question was, what did... Uh, Prince Hal learned from Falstaff, and would he have been a different king had he not uh, received that education? Um, I think he would have been a very different king if he hadn't had the association with Falstaff. And what's interesting about this play is that I think you will answer that question. That once he became a king, there were certain obligations that he had to leave certain people behind and certain things behind. But it, it had changed him so that, that there are moments in the play where he redeems himself because what we remember in Henry IV Part Two is the banishment when he banishes Falstaff. Well, this, this goes much farther than that and there are, there are connections between Falstaff and Prince Hal or the king uh, later on as well. And... Uh, so I think that the question this afternoon might be answered for you. Uh, but I, I think he would have been a very different king had he not had this experience of, of understanding uh, the ordinary people. And, and if, if he had just been a prince, I, I think we've learned from that too. I think if you look at the royal family now, uh, the, the royal family has benefited a great deal from kind of coming out, down off the, the pedestal and kind of finding out how real people live. Yeah. It's so uh, moving, too, in Henry IV, part one, the way Falstaff is almost a surrogate father for Hal, eh? Oh. In that scene where they act out what it is, he says, you know, uh, my father will react in a certain way, and Hal plays the father, yeah. Yeah. and Falstaff plays Hal, and then they switch roles. And, switch and it's back like and forth. Un- It's like modern psychological role play therapy or something, it but it's very touching. It well, I think, too, uh, that... that Falstaff always thought of himself or justified his actions mm. as being a kind of the father that uh, Hal would have liked to have had because yeah. Henry IV was not particularly a nice man, yeah. according to Falstaff. <laughs> and uh, obviously, uh, Hal needed an outlet for some of his... Uh, uh, to get rid of some of the problems he was having at home. Uh, Yes, sir, you had a question. Uh, yes. Uh, is there any of Shakespeare's language preserved in the book and, and in the play? The, the question is, is there any of Shakespeare's language in Robert Nye's book and in the play you'll see this afternoon? There's quite a lot of it. There's a, there's a lot of it. Hopefully, um, it won't stand out as being, oh, suddenly we're going to Shakespeare and then we're, we're going to jump back into Robert Nye. Uh, but there, there's a lot of references too. I mean, Nye uses a lot of Shakespearean uh, names and references, and also because the book is uh, is about somebody who lived long before Shakespeare, so that none of it is 
Nothing was attributable to Shakespeare. Is the book still in print? It is, and I think you can still get it. I've, there's a wonderful um, website to find books. And I know it's, it's not Amazon or Alibris. It's called bookfinder.com. And if you ever need to find a book that's out of print, you'll find everybody in the world who has this book on offer and uh, at various prices. Bookfinder.com. And if bookfinder.com is listening to this podcast, this is the last free plug week of you. <laughs> Sponsor the interviews. Bookfinder. Um, but it's a very good place to find uh, books. And, I, and I've, that's how I found the first copy. And the, the late Mr. Shakespeare is recent. It's very recent. It just came out, didn't it? Or no, a year it's, ago? no, it's pretty old. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. No, that's, it's, no it's, there's it's a new old. one. There's a new one that's just come out. I was reading about a new Robert Nye. In the last year, certainly. I thought it was that. This... But Dang. About an actor and his troupe. It may be reissued. Maybe it's a reissue. I'm sorry, there's a question. Pardon? About yeah. Yeah. I think it's a reissue. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Mrs. Shakespeare, the complete works, is very funny and would make a wonderful one person show. It would. It would. Yeah. There. Oh, available good. on Amazon.com. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there was a question over here, I think. No? Yeah. The question was, does, does John see Falstaff as Shakespeare's great anti-war hero? Well, it's, it's, I, I think so. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm kind of caught between two things here because I'm, I'm working on something where I'm very positive about the contribution of the Canadian, <laughs> the Canadian yeah. military in, in the war, and I'm, I'm looking at that from one... And yet I'm, I've done Henry V twice. Uh, I've worked on a lot of documentaries. There's a very... Uh, strong bias against war in this through Falstaff. So I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I think that the Falstaff, I think, is uh, it, certainly here. I'm not sure it's the same in Shakespeare's Falstaff, but in, in what we were trying to do, there is a definite uh, strong uh, anti-war bias here. Uh, certainly for the wrong reasons. I, I think he's against war for the wrong reasons. That's why at Shrewsbury, which was totally gratuitous and, and it was Hotspur and, and King Henry IV against it, he thought it was a waste of lives. Whereas Agincourt, and he talks about honor, and he's very angry about the word honor at that point. When he goes at Agincourt, honor means something totally different because... Uh, it was, there was no way that Henry V could avoid that because the French were spread out and there was 5,000 people against 100,000 and the British won. And, but he found honour and there was, a, there was a different attitude toward honour by that time in his life, in his, in his assessment of, of what war was. So it, 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 I, can, I can understand that to, uh, to mm -hmm. some degree. 
Well, thank you very much for coming out this afternoon, and thank you, John, very oh, much for you. doing thank this, you. and enjoy thank the show. Have a good time at the play. <laughs> That's all for this Interviews podcast. I hope you'll join us again next month when Peter will be talking with the Right Honourable Adrian Clarkson and Artistic Director of Toronto's Pleiades Theatre, John Van Burek, about their new translation of Molière's Le Malade Imaginaire, titled Dying to be Sick. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to hinterviews at gmail.com. That's H-I-N-T-E-R-V-I-E-W-S at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Hinterviews. Until next month, this is Laura Denker for Peter Hinton & Company saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa.